Welcome to Hub Headlines. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in The Hub for February 26. Up first is Brian Dykema writing on Hockey Canada's culture problem, why the culture needs reform, and the issues facing Hockey Canada. Canada's hockey culture needs attention, urgently, and no, sensitivity training and a few rule changes won't fix anything. This cultural problem deserves an intervention. That intervention begins by paying attention to how hockey culture exists within the broader culture surrounding masculinity, sex, and community. A prime example of the problem is in the horrid details of the alleged group sexual assault of a woman by five players from Canada's 2018 junior men's hockey team. Where would anyone learn such behavior? Where would any young man learn to hit, spit, verbally abuse, and gang rape? The answer, pornography. Uncomfortable as it is, no real change will come to Canadian hockey culture without considering the tacit cultural acceptance of what's considered sexual entertainment. Louise Perry, in her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, quoting Mary Wollstonecraft, says, The little respect paid to chastity in the male world is, I am persuaded, the grand source of many of the physical and moral evils that torment mankind, as well as the vices that degrade and destroy women. Indeed, the allegations against five Canadian hockey players appear to be a case study in the accuracy of Wollstonecraft. As Perry and other recent writers like Christine Emba have noted, sex is at once highly personal, but also profoundly shaped by cultural assumptions about what is normal that in turn shape that personal behavior. And today, increasingly, these assumptions are shaped by pornography. Yet broader Canadian culture seems to consider the use of pornography as just another consumable good. We are generally unwilling to recognize that pornography shapes people's views of sex and its practice in ways that particularly demean women and diminish healthy masculinity. And while some might have legitimate concerns about how the state involves itself in this matter, that shouldn't prevent us from having a cultural discussion as fellow citizens about it. Almost everyone is content to say in the Hockey Canada case that the sexual assault of the woman identified in court as EM is wrong. However, most of us seem unwilling to say that watching such behavior in the privacy of our screens is wrong. Sadly, that would mean it's not just hockey culture that's afraid to speak up against something that might be deemed a bit weird. Blaming Hockey Canada's incentive structures and lack of accountability is good, but it's only part of the picture. Any attempt to reform Hockey Canada's culture needs to pay attention not only to the incentive structures that create the conditions under which this abuse occurs, but also to the nature of the abuse itself. What both of these matters share is the nature of the communities and assumptions that shape what it means to be a person. And in the case of Canada's men's team, what it means to be a man. Let's start with the hockey culture. Sensitivity training is not going to fix Hockey Canada, and anyone who says so, or who thinks a few rule changes are going to solve it, is lying to you. There are some deeply rooted challenges facing hockey culture that won't be solved by more rules. 
Junior hockey removes young men from their homes, families, and communities and places them into a high-intensity, highly mobile environment that values discipline, but primarily discipline related to on-ice performance. The normal accountability structures for off-ice behavior, parents, godparents, family, friends, etc., just aren't there. And this is true even though the families that billet these young men often care a great deal for them and act as surrogates. What's more, there are a host of hangers-on, agents looking to gain clients, potential sponsors, team officials looking to ensure their guys are taken care of, that often, not always, act in ways that encourage the bad behavior. High-level junior hockey means the majority of your week is spent on the ice and with your team. This makes those young men extremely reliant on the goodwill of coaches, team officials, and older players who have a disproportionate influence on their playing careers and the potential of big money and fame in their hands. Hockey is also a sport that requires high team alignment to succeed and it's the rare player who benefits from being all that different from his teammates. Just go to a hockey rink on any given Saturday and observe the haircuts. But go with the flow doesn't just refer to the hair. It is the mentality of anyone who wants to keep his head down and just let his play on the ice do the talking. The challenge is that all of this creates a culture where those who might see or sense that something is wrong don't have great incentives to stick out their necks and speak out when the players are the ones perpetrating the abuse. It also sets the stage for potential abuse of the players themselves, as the tragic stories of Theoren Fleury and Sheldon Kennedy show. There has been a long trail of broken lives left by sexual abuse in hockey, and the young woman who is at the center of this case is rare, only in her courage and perseverance. I admire and honor her fortitude, and I hope she inspires others who suffer abuse to come forward and for the authorities to take these matters seriously. Hockey Canada needs to pay attention not just to the money, nor even to the old man network that still holds so much sway over players. It needs to examine the nature of the community in which hockey takes place but also real gender-specific models of behavior that we provide to young men. So, while I'm all for altering our junior hockey systems to tie them much more closely to communities of accountability, I think we all need to take a moment to consider that there are things beyond Hockey Canada, things that many people are unwilling to think of as needing reform, that contribute to the abuse we see in this horrible case. One of them is the ubiquitous access to porn and a tacit, if not outright, condoning of its presence in young men's lives. I know that will sound like puritanism to many readers, but again, ask yourself, where did those young men learn to behave the way they are alleged to have behaved? Do we imagine that the widespread normality of deviant sexual behavior that is present on sites that Canada allows to continue without concern has no effect on young men? If we think that the culture of Hockey Canada contributed to this horrible situation, and most of us do, we should probably apply the same lens to our culture's comfort with things that are shaping what young men think is appropriate for sex. And, just as there's a case to be made against the culture of Hockey Canada, we might want to consider that there's a case to be made 
against some of our assumptions of normal when it comes to sex. That might be a good first step in moving away from vices that degrade and destroy women toward virtues that make not just better hockey players, but better men. That was a commentary by Brian Dykma. He is the Vice President of External Affairs with Cardis. You can find the full text of his article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Peter Menzies, who is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute and former vice chair to the CRTC. He is writing today on the government's online harms act, the dangers of children being exposed to pornography, and what the conservatives can do on this issue. By the time you have finished reading this, Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party of Canada may have figured out that making Canadians the freest people on earth doesn't involve the state assigning hall monitors to govern the internet. Because prior to this week's launch of the government's Online Harms Act, there was considerable evidence to suggest the Tories don't understand the consequences of internet regulation any better than their hapless opponents in government. The Conservatives, as we speak, are backers of independent Senator Julie Meville de Chen's private member's Bill S-210. Its intent, like so many pieces of legislation, is virtuous, as it is trying to protect children from access to online pornography. But the road to regulatory hell is paved with good intentions. And the legislation is so clumsily constructed as to pose significant threats to privacy and free expression. Experts such as David Fraser, a Halifax privacy lawyer and law school lecturer, describe it as a clear and present danger to a free and open internet. The internet advocacy group Open Media says, if S210 is passed without major fixes, Canadians could see most internet services require us to provide a government-issued ID to log on, have our faces repeatedly scanned and stored in leaky databases to simply live our online lives. Similar critiques have been leveled by legal experts such as the University of Calgary's Emily Laidlaw and the University of Ottawa's Michael Geist, the latter of whom called it the most dangerous Canadian internet law you've never heard of. And while we were pondering how conservative support for the most privacy-invading, freedom-of-expression-suppressing online legislation yet was going to help any of us take back control of our lives, Poliev declared a future conservative government would ensure people less than 18 years of age would not be able to access pornography online. That was quickly followed by a caveat-laced statement issued by Poliev spokesman Sebastian Skamsky, who was clarifying that conservatives are opposed to imposing a digital ID or other measures that would limit adults' online freedom, even though they are currently supporting along with the NDP and Bloc, a bill that would do just that. So, just when you thought it was the Liberals who were, rightfully, going to be the ones wearing the crown of Internet Freedom Crusher come the next election, the Conservatives looked like they wanted to share the title. And they appeared to be doing so by enthusiastically joining the Let's Expand the Power of the State over the most democratizing, freedom-friendly invention since the printing press crowd. Hopefully, the response to the Online Harms Act will be more nuanced. Children should not be exposed to pornography. Numerous studies have shown it has a deleterious impact. 
including impairment of the ability to form rewarding intimate relationships and the objectification of women. No doubt the isolation of the pandemic left many young men more capable of forming a rewarding relationship with their laptop than with the girl next door. With that in mind, parents should be equipped with every tool possible to help them protect their children. And, currently, they can restrict access on the devices they own to ensure their kids aren't exposed to porn. Good enough? Maybe not. Children, particularly as teenagers, figure out ways to get around barriers just like they figure out ways to share some contraband vodka in the park on a Saturday night. But that doesn't mean we don't recognize that there are certain things in this world for which access needs to be restricted to grown-ups or that we give up trying to keep them on course. Nor does it mean we need agents of the state putting the nation at risk of data breaches. Two words here, Ashley, Madison. An identity theft by having to flash credit cards, driver licenses, and inevitably facial and voice recognition IDs to watch movies like Nine and a Half Weeks on the Internet. So, conservatives, here's some advice on how to do the right thing the right way. Leave legal content on the Internet alone. By all means, ensure the criminal code is enforced, but do not, under any circumstances, put some puffed-up public servant in charge of patrolling the online world. The state has no business in the Wi-Fi of the nation. Second, empower parents and families with the equipment they need to control their household's Internet access as they see fit and work with the people who really understand technology to do so. For instance, if your bank or credit card company can send you an alert when there is unusual activity on your account, it seems reasonable to expect one's Internet service provider could be of similar assistance. I am not an engineer and haven't checked with one, but it is important for policymakers to search for solutions of this nature. So, at least to illustrate a point, would it not make perfectly sensible policy to ensure that if, when it comes to Internet service, families were given the option of choosing to be alerted any time a device connected via their account accesses an adults-only website? Sites of that nature could be, by regulation, watermarked in the same fashion as those embedded to identify images created by generative AI. Would that not serve the same purpose? achieve the same goal as the legislation the conservatives are currently backing? Would such a solution not respect privacy, individual liberty, and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in ways Bill S-210 does not? If the conservatives genuinely want to give us back control of our lives and make us the freest people on earth, they could start by stepping back from their recent alliance with big government solutions and instead find ways to help individuals take control of their lives by managing what comes into their homes. That was Peter Menzies appearing in today's Hub. He is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute and former vice chair to the CRTC. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to The Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. 
The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granofsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the host of Hub Headlines. Thanks for listening.